probably you've heard the phrase, you demand, right? Anybody heard that? It's a little dated, okay? Students, bear with me. It's a little dated. Uh, it actually has pop culture origins in the 90s. It started a guy by the name of Irving Keister. He and a buddy of his were playing horseshoes, and his buddy got a ringer, and he said, you demand. So he got a good response from his buddy. He decided he liked to go to uh, PGA Tour matches, and he started going to these matches and getting as close to the microphone as he could. And whenever somebody would hit a big tee shots, he would scream, you demand. And so it caught on. And that's where that phrase, the pop culture origin began. But that's not really where that phrase started. The origin of that phrase is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We see a prophet says that to a king. A prophet says something that no one else was willing to say to a king, what somebody really should have said a year earlier, but was unwilling to say. He looks at the king and says, you are the man. We look back at this king, and this king's name was David, and David lived about 3,000 years ago. And David is a unique figure in the Bible. He's a special figure in the Bible. One of the, one of the reasons he's unique, one of the reasons we know that, if you doubt his importance in the Bible, look back in the Old Testament, and there are 62 chapters in the Old Testament dedicated to King David. If you look in the New Testament, you see him mentioned 60 different times in the New Testament. David was a special guy. He was a, a great warrior. He was a great king that served a great nation under a great God with a great passion for God. I mean, he was a, a great man. As a matter of fact, the Bible says something about David that it doesn't say about anybody else in the Bible, and that's that David was a man after God's own heart. Now think about that for a moment. The Bible doesn't say that about Paul. The Bible doesn't say that about Peter, James, John, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, none of those guys. David, there was something about him, something about his passion for God that was so unique that the Bible declares, God himself declared that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a special guy. But if you look at David about the age of 50, David is middle-aged, about the age of 50, something happens. He has a one-night stand with a lady by the name of Bathsheba who was married. This one-night stand leads to a pregnancy. And instead of confessing his sin, David decides he's going to cover up that sin. And he ends up having... Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. After this event takes place, a solid year goes by after David does all this to cover this sin up. And from an outsider, you would look at it and think, David is going to get away with this. He's committed the perfect crime. He's going to do something that nobody else in the history of man has done and, and get away with defying God and nothing's going to happen. Or maybe, maybe just that God, either he's asleep at the wheel or maybe since David was such a man after God's own heart that God was just going to let him slide on this one, that he was just going to let it go. Hey, he's done so many good things, maybe God will just let it go. A solid year goes by 
But what we find is that David had fooled most everybody, but God was still paying attention. And what we learn in this, in, in the end of chapter 11, it says this. We would think he was going to get away with it except for this. At the end of chapter 11, the last part of verse 27, it says, The Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Now you think about this. David thought he had fooled everybody. And 99% of the kingdom had no idea what had happened. And the 1% that did know, I mean, they were too afraid to confront the king with it. I mean, who's going to go tell the king, hey, you're guilty of doing this? They, they would be risking their own lives. So 99% had, had, had fool, been fooled. The 1% is not going to do anything. But God had not been fooled. God considered what David had done to be evil. And God waited for a solid year to go by before he finally confronts David. Let me tell you why this happens, why David did not get away with this. God may not settle your sin account today, right after you commit whatever you sin you commit. God may not settle your sin account tomorrow, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, but one thing I can tell you is that God always settles sin accounts. God will never let sin go unpunished. Nobody ever gets away with it. The Bible says this in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Again, you may not reap today. You may not reap tomorrow. You may not reap five years, ten years. You may not reap until eternity. But one day you will reap what you sow. God settles sin accounts. We see David as a sovereign. We see David as a soldier. We see David as a shepherd, but today we are going to see David as an everyday, average, run-of-the-mill sinner, just like all of us. A sinner who committed a sin against God, a sin that God will not allow to go unpunished. Now let me ask you a question this morning, okay? Moment of truth. How many of you here today have ever committed a sin? I knew it. I was preaching to a bunch of sinners. I knew it all along. And if you didn't raise your hand, you just lied, so you're a sinner just like the rest of us. We've all committed sin, every one of us. And nobody's shocked, nobody should be shocked by that. And let me tell you, God certainly isn't shocked by that. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that we've all done things that he doesn't want us to do. And, and what, we, what really concerns him, I mean, sin concerns him, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But let me tell you what really concerns God. What really concerns God is that when you sin, when I sin, and then we're confronted with the reality of our sin, how do we respond to that? When we're convicted of our sin, do we cover it up or do we confess it, repent, turn away from it, and turn back to God? Because what you're going to see here today, two things we're going to see in this story. One is how God deals with sin in the life of his children. And two, how his children should deal with God when he confronts us with sin. How we should deal with sin. We're going to learn from today, from the life of David, three lessons that will help you at some point in your life. Three lessons. Number one, when confronted with my sin... Whatever that sin is, I need to personally realize the fact of my sin. I need to personally realize that my sin is just what it is. It is sin. Look at, 
If you're going to deal with it, you've got to realize the fact of it. Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 12, the first part. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. A couple of things. First of all, notice it doesn't say Nathan decided it was time to confront David. It wasn't like he was sitting around saying, somebody's got to do something about this king. Somebody's got to confront him about this, and so I'll just take matters into my own hand. No, the Lord sent Nathan. God sent him, not Nathan. The second thing is the word then. What do I mean by then, or why then? Well, this just reminds us that God is not subject to time. I mean, we're all consumed with time, right? I and mean, that's why we're wearing watches. That's why we've got clocks that we've we got to be somewhere at a certain time. God's not concerned with time. God is all about timing. And when you think about the timing of these events, then the Lord sent Nathan. When did God do it? Was it immediately after David had committed the sin with Bathsheba? No. Was it after he found out she was pregnant? No. Was it after he had Uriah killed? No. It was a year. A year went by. All of this time goes by. Now God finally says, okay, it's time. Now, if you look at Psalm 31 and Psalm 52, these are two uh, passages, two Two psalms that David wrote during this year before he was confronted, confessed his sin. You see something. David is riddled with guilt. I mean, it's eating him alive. He can't sleep. He can't rest. He can't do anything. So here's what God is allowing to happen. He's allowing David just to stew in that guilt for a year. For a whole year, David, I mean, it's just, it's just, he's soaking in that guilt, and that's reflected in those Psalms. So God's just letting him stew in this. David really probably thought he had gotten away with this, but things aren't always as they appear. If he would have only, in his quiet time, if he would have only looked at what it says in Hosea chapter 7, verse 2, he would have learned something very important. It says, they do not consider in their hearts, God says, that I remember all of their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. Here's a sobering thought for the day, okay? Every sin that you have ever committed is right before the face of God. He sees every one of them, all right? When we lived in, in, uh, in Pinson, Alabama... I had a media room that I built in the basement of our house. I finished a room in the basement, and I built, I made a media room. Y'all know my love for home theater stuff, right? Well, I, I built this media room, and it had a projection screen, a projector and a screen, and it was huge. That screen was 92 inches, okay? It was beautiful. High definition. I mean, if you like watching movies, that's the best way. You know, it's not like the movie theater. If you've got to go to the restroom, you hit pause. You don't have to worry about missing <laughs> It was great, comfortable. We even had a popcorn machine. It was great. But this huge 92-inch screen, high definition, the picture was incredible. When I read Hosea 7-2, it occurs to me that that is how God sees my sin. In a huge, high-definition screen, figuratively speaking, every sin I ever commit, I don't, no matter how hard I try to hide it, I can't hide it from God. Every sin we ever commit is before the face of God. And if only David would have realized that. If only he, he knew that. If only he would have, have thought about that. Verse, verse 1 of, of 2 Samuel 12 again, the second part. Look at the beginning. There were two men in one city. Nathan decides he's going he's to confront David, or he's told to. So he tells him a story. 
to do this. There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except this one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan, he is sharp as a tack. He didn't just come in and say, okay, David, you dirty, rotten, lousy sinner. I mean, David probably would have had him killed right there if he'd done that. I mean, he doesn't just come right out with it. David, Nathan just comes in through the back door. He tells him this story, and the symbolism is so very clear. The rich man, of course, is David. The poor man is Uriah in the story. The pet lamb is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and the passerby is sin. The symbolism is clear. And you can just imagine David, Nathan telling David this story. David's on the edge of his seat, and he's listening, and he's getting madder and madder by the moment. He's sitting sitting there thinking, somebody has done this in my kingdom. Some guy has taken advantage of someone else, has, has committed this horrendous crime in my kingdom, and you could just you could see his face getting redder, veins popping out of his, his neck, his forehead, whatever the case. I mean, he's just getting angrier and angrier. And the reason we know that is verse 5. David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. David knows that Nathan knows David won't allow this to go, this sin to go unpunished. David would never allow something like this to happen in his kingdom. And Nathan knows that David is going to find whoever this is and he's going to punish him to the fullest extent of the law. He's going to make this man pay fourfold as the law required for what he had done. And just, I mean, you know, just like a, a, a big old bass and a juicy worm, David, I mean, he grabs it hook, line, and sinker, right? I mean, he, he goes for the whole, I mean, he, this guy has to be punished. And with four little words, David's, Nathan sets the hook and reels David in. You can see at this moment, I can picture the scene, Nathan looks at David and probably very quietly says, you are that man. It's not a guy stealing a lamb, David, it's you. You're the one. You are that man. And again, don't know for sure, but you could could see as David realizes Suddenly, his sin is out in the open. You could just see the blood drain from his face. I bet he was white as a sheet. Suddenly, he realizes this sin that he thought maybe he had gotten away with, he had not. It was all out in the open. Nathan knew about it. This prophet knew exactly what he had done. Suddenly, David is confronted with his sin. But let me, let me tell you what's amazing to me here. And this is a lesson for all of us. What amazes me here is how quickly David was able to recognize the imaginary sin of some imaginary person 
but how slow he was to recognize a very real sin that he had committed in his own very real life. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? It's so easy for us to see the sin of others. It's so easy for us to see other people's faults, their, their flaws in their character, the things that drive us crazy, but it's so very difficult to recognize the sin that's in our own lives. Jesus talked about this. It's easy for us to pull the toothpick out of our neighbor's eye when there's a plank sticking out of our own. It's so very difficult for us to recognize sin. And that's where David was. He, he could see this imaginary story. This guy has to pay, but he had pushed his sin back so far, he refused to recognize it. And here's the thing. When David passes judgment on this guy, he, he's got to be put to death. David's just doing what the law required. The Old Testament Levitical law required that this happen. Look at Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. I mean, he's, he's saying pay back fourfold what had happened. David had passed judgment, but what he, wasn't, what he didn't realize is that he was passing judgment as the king. He was passing judgment on himself when Nathan told this story. But, but the reality is David thought he was looking through a window when in reality he was looking in the mirror. He thought he was looking through a window at somebody else's sin when in actuality he was looking at himself and his own sin in the mirror. He was looking at the man in the mirror. He had no clue. He was passing judgment, rightfully so, but he was passing judgment on himself. But the, the, the problem was is what David had done was so much worse. He hadn't stolen a lamb. He had stolen a wife. He hadn't killed a sheep. He had killed a man. David, what he had done was so much worse. When we're confronted with our sin, we need to be willing to, to accept the reality and the seriousness of our sin, which David had to do. Then he teaches us something else. Number two, I need to appropriately respond. When I'm confronted with the reality of my sin, I need to be willing to respond appropriately to the wickedness of my sin. I need to understand the seriousness and the wickedness of my sin. Look at verse 7. Nathan sent, Nathan sent, then said to David, you are the man. Again, blood rushes from his face, David realizes. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like this. What God is say, saying to David, he's saying, David, I want you to see two things. Number one, how wasteful your sin was. He's saying, David, have I not given you enough? I've given you a kingdom. You didn't need Bathsheba, you didn't need another wife. I've given you all that you could ever want and more. I've given you more than any man could ever possibly need. Why in the world did you do this? It was just wasteful. There was no reason. And here's the lesson. You never have to do wrong to get what's right. And you never have to do bad to get what's best for you. I want to let you know a little secret. If you have to do wrong to get something you want... God doesn't want you to have it. You never have to do wrong to get something you need. If you need it, God will provide a way for you to get it 
the right way. You never have to do wrong to get what's right. You never have to do bad to get something that you need. What God is saying to David and what we need to hear again is God saying, David, if you would just trust me, a man after God's own heart, he didn't trust God in this. If you just trust me, if you will just depend on me, if you'll just believe that my way is the right way, I will provide you with everything that you could possibly need. Hey, I'll provide you with more than you could possibly need because I love to show grace and I love to show favor to my children. The devil, though, is the, the master at cutting corners, okay? God's got a way. The devil says, if you'll just cut this corner, you can get what you want a lot faster. But here's what happens. You cut the corner, and then you find out, whoops, this wasn't something God wanted me to have. And then suddenly there are consequences that come with cutting corners, with not doing things God's way. Because again, if you have to do something wrong to get something you want, it's not something that God wants you to have. The second thing God wanted to teach David, he wanted him to realize that, that he had to face up to just how wicked his sin was. I mean, this was no small crime. He had committed adultery. He had committed murder. I mean, these, these were, he'd covered it all up, child out of wedlock, all of these things. These were serious things that he had done. He had committed these sins. And, and here's, but, but just committing them was one thing. What David does afterwards is much worse. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. When I sin, when I do something wrong, and then I say I'm confronted with that, I realize David knew what he had done was wrong when he did it. But then when I push the button and choose, instead of confessing to cover up my sin, then suddenly I've taken it to a whole new level. David had covered up, chosen to cover up his sin, and that's worse than just committing the act itself. It goes deeper than that. God told David three things through Nathan about his sin. Let's look at these verses. Verse 9 of chapter 12 he says, says, you have despised, why have you despised the word of the Lord? That's one thing. And then in verse 10, God says, you have not only despised my word, you've despised me. And then verse 14, he says, you have given occasion to the enemies of God, to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And here's, why, here's where we realize that the reason sin is so terrible, because all sin is ultimately sin against God. That's why if you hear somebody say, listen, you don't just leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. Okay, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to live my life the way that I want. Don't tell me how to live because what I'm doing, if I'm hurting anybody, I'm just hurting myself. That is a fallacy. And here's why that truth, all sin hurts God, every sin. So the idea that, hey, I'm just hurting myself, even if which is very seldom actually the truth when it comes to other people. Even if you're not hurting any other human being, you are hurting God. And here's how you hurt God, three ways. He tells David, he says, first, you despise the word of the Lord. And here's how we despise the word of the Lord. Whenever God's word tells us to do something and we refuse to do it, or when it tells us not to do something and we do it anyway, then we're despising the word of the Lord. We're saying it doesn't matter, that we don't believe it. We can say we believe it, but we're showing that we don't by the way that we live. Then he says, you disgrace the name of God. You have despised me. And that happens whenever we shake our fists at God and say, God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do things my way. You've disgraced, you've despised me, God says. And then he goes on and he says that, that 
we hurt the Lord when we damage the reputation of God. He says, you've given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. And, and here's what's, one of the things that's so damaging about our sin is that when we claim Christ, and listen, none of us are perfect, but when we, when we defy God, when we sin, and instead of confessing it, we push the cover-up button and we try to pretend like it never happened. Other people see that. They see the inconsistencies in our lives. And they say, hey, listen, that guy's no different than I am. Why should I believe in his God? Why should I trust him? Why should I believe that he knows how to live and how to get to heaven if he doesn't even believe it himself? We cause anything that we do that causes other people to stumble is a disgrace to God. We cause people, give occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. Give David credit, though. Look at verse 13, how he responds. He said to Nathan, I have sinned against God. If only, if only David had said that a year ago. If only the moment he walked out on his porch and saw Bathsheba bathing, if only at that moment he had stopped and said, Lord, I am so sorry, confessed his sin and moved on. If only before he bought into what he was buying into, if only he had checked the price tag first. And the same could be said for us. How many times do we do something we want knowing it's wrong and then later find out it wasn't worth it at all? The consequences are just too great. The wickedness of our sin. We need to understand the wickedness of our sin. But don't miss this about David. Was David a great sinner? You bet. He absolutely was. But David was also a great repenter. David confesses his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. He owns up to it. He doesn't blame somebody else. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm the youngest of eight kids. It's in my genes. He doesn't come up with a million excuses as to why, and, and, and we're kind of used to that, aren't we? There was an article that came out a few years ago, and it, could, it says, what if David was a baby boomer, but it could say, what if David was a Gen Xer as well? This is how he would have handled it. If he were a king nowadays, this is how he would have handled it. I'll read it for you. This would be his letter to his, his uh, kingdom. My fellow countrymen, I requested this airtime on ISRL, think about that, Israel, Yeah, to speak to you about questions regarding my relationship to a woman you've heard a lot about in recent months. I mean, of course, my newest wife, Bathsheba, that's who I'm talking about. You may have wondered about our marriage so soon after the death of one of our national heroes, her late husband, Uriah. Many rumors have been spread concerning the tragic death of our son shortly after his birth as well. As you can well imagine, this has been a painful time for me and my family. I acknowledge that there was something inappropriate about my relationship with this woman before our marriage. I realize that my silence coupled with my previous statements may concern you. My my assertion that I did not have sexual relations with my wife before our marriage were technically correct, for she was not my wife before our marriage. I was also correct when I affirmed that when Uriah was killed in battle, I had nothing to do with it because the battle orders were issued by General Joab. I, however, did not volunteer to reveal any information. You may feel you have been misled. There are reasons for my silence in my previous statements. For one thing, I did not see any reason I should suffer public embarrassment by revelations about one of my personal relationships. I've also been concerned about the impact of this information on my other wives and children. 
And I did not feel it proper for anyone to cast a shadow over my latest marriage or the sorrow of a recently widowed woman I have tried to comfort. But there is another reason, and it's the cause of the anger you discern in my voice and the demeanor tonight. I've had enough of the meddling, investigative, and judgmental prophet, Nathan. What happened between Bathsheba and me should have remained a matter to be handled within the royal family, and it would, it would have if Nathan had not burst in uninvited into my palace and tricked me by taking advantage of my compassionate nature into saying things that were better left unsaid. You need to know that this prophet Nathan is mean-spirited. In addition to exposing my private life, he has heartlessly announced judgments, short-term and long-term, for my mistake. You won't believe this, but he says that the death of our son was the result of what he calls my sin. Can you imagine the anguish this has caused, grieving parents? He also has the audacity to predict that while I may be forgiven, I must live with the consequences of my actions for the rest of my life. He says my family will always experience conflict and that I will be humiliated in broad daylight for what I did in secret. After All this after I replaced a failing king, united the country, defeated its enemies, and moved to the, the ark back to Jerusalem. What kind of man is this? Enough is enough. This matters between me and my family and our God. It's not the business of a prophet or anyone else. It will be settled within our family and the privacy of our personal consciences. I'm sure you agree. Which of the elders of Israel or which of you could stand up under the scrutiny of a prying prophet like Nathan? Citizens and yes, even kings have a right to privacy. It is time to move on. My family and I need time to heal from the tragedies that we've experienced and from the unmerciful probing of this prophet. As a nation, we need to deal with the current threats of the Philistines and Ammonites to deepen our national unity and to build the prosperity I've brought during my reign. I'm confident of your understanding and support. You and I are flawed people. What we need is not confrontation and condemnation by priggish prophets. Let us forgive each other, feel each other's pain, and sympathetically help each other deal with the many arbitrary and unwelcome providences that disturb our personal peace. Good night, and God bless us as we so richly deserve. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> we hear leaders all the time say things like this. We hear people all the time when confronted with their sin, oh, it wasn't my fault, here were the circumstances. This person pushed me in this direction. I was born with that tendency. It was my genes, it wasn't my fault. But David, thankfully, this was not his response. When confronted with his sin, David said, Lord, forgive me, I've sinned against you. Yeah, I've sinned against Bathsheba, I've sinned against Uriah, I've sinned against all these other people. But what was so, wor so bad was, I've sinned against you. That was his response. That's the way you appropriately respond. But here comes the tough part. Yeah, he responds appropriately. God's going to forgive him, but there are still going to be consequences for his sin. And this is where we learn we have to humbly receive the consequences of my sin. You know, let, let's go back to what the law of God says. If a man commits adultery, he's put to death under the Levitical law. If he murders another man, he's put to death under the Levitical law. David's already passed judgment, so he deserves to die. 
I mean, the kingdom would have been well within its rights to have him executed. David deserved, according to God's law, he deserved to die. He deserved to pay fourfold as he, the sentence he passed for the sin that he committed. But notice how God handles David's confession in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. I want you to put a little circle around that phrase, you shall not die, or underline it. Did he deserve to die? Yeah. As I said, the kingdom well within its rights to do that. But what you see here is a beautiful picture of the grace of God. All through David's life, he had bathed in the grace of God. Whether it was him conquering Goliath, God sparing his life from the lion and the bear, from King Saul, all through his life, he had experienced God's grace. So now, once again, grace had come, guilt was gone, but unfortunately, grief was just around the corner because there were still consequences that he was going to have to experience. Even though David confessed his sins, There are consequences. What are they? Look at verse 10. Nathan says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. God's speaking to him through Nathan. You have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. However, because... By this deed you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David had to be, hey, he had to pay. I mean, there, there had to be consequences for what he had done. You go back again to that night. If only he'd have, he would thought, have thought about what he was going to experience what the consequences might be if he had just stopped at that moment and confessed his sin. Our own lives, if, if we would just think about what we were buying into before we bought into it, what the results would be, what the consequences would be, how many times have we seen that sin costs us far more than what we thought we were buying into to begin with, what it's worth. And here's what David's sin cost him. Here's the tragedy. He lost his baby boy. His son died as a result of his sin. And then another son, his oldest son, raped his sister. That cost David. And then even more than that, another brother killed that son because he raped his sister. He's losing all of these children. It's all a result. Dathan predicted it. God told him what was going to happen, and it happens. And then when that same son who killed his brother, he usurped his father's throne, he was ultimately killed. For an attempted coup. Or he actually did accomplish it for a little while. He lost that son as well. All of this because David didn't cut it off at the point of temptation. And didn't confess his sin. David, the sentence was fourfold, right? David paid fourfold. He paid horrifically, tragically, the consequences. And here's the point. Forgiveness erases the guilt of sin. But it doesn't erase the grief of sin. When you sin, when I sin, even though you're, you're for, you've received forgiveness, 
consequences from a spiritual standpoint are removed, there still can be personal consequences, relational consequences, physical consequences. I mean, you know, one, 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 a one-night stand an affair, a night out driving after drinking, your marriage is broken, your reputation's ruined, you could lose your job because of something you do at work. While there's forgiveness... You may still lose your job. You may have to serve jail time. Your marriage may be broken because of the sin that you committed. There are still temporary, physical, emotional, relational consequences. There's forgiveness. God removes the guilt, but there are still consequences. And I know this sounds harsh and cruel, but there are two reasons, two reasons why God gives us, makes sure that we experience consequences. One is because all sin has to be punished because God is holy and God requires it. He's a holy God. He requires it. The second one, though, is that God uses consequences to bring us back into a right relationship with Him and and to teach us lessons about don't do that again. Ow, that hurts. I'm not going to touch that hot stove again. Consequences teach us those valuable lessons. There's a great verse in Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now... I keep your word. You think about this. You never read about David having an affair ever again. You never read about him having any other problems with women after this day. Bathsheba didn't have to worry about him walking out onto his porch and succumbing to temptation again. Why? Because David learned his lesson. David experienced the consequences. He suffered greatly. And don't miss the last lesson of David's life. Look in verse 13. The Lord also has taken away your sin. That phrase, the Lord has taken away your sin, there's an alternate translation. It says, the Lord has taken your sin and has placed it on someone else. Which is exactly what Jesus Christ does for each and every one of us who will accept his forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus took on your sin, my sin. How can he take a guy like Alan Hayes with all sorts of tendencies for all sorts of different kinds of sin and use him for his glory? Because Jesus took my sin on the cross. He cleaned me out and he cleaned me up. That's why. And I want to show you in a physical sense what God does with our sin. We, we see on the cross that Jesus was willing to suffer and die and take the punishment that was due all of us. And, and here's how I want to show you, illustrate. This is just a bag of, it's stuffing for a beanbag chair, in case you're wondering. But it, 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 we're going to say that it represents our sin, okay? If I can ever get it open, that is. They, all these little bitty beans represent our sin, and this represents our life, Okay? And whenever we, all of us, when we're born, we're born with sin. So we'll give ourselves just a little bit of sin just to start with, to start our lives with, okay? So we're all born with a certain amount of sin, but then we choose to sin. Tell a lie. Maybe we, I don't know, steal a candy bar at the store when we're a kid. Maybe we grow up, we do something worse. We cheat on our taxes. Maybe you actually go as far as David did. You commit adultery. You commit murder. I mean, you get the idea of sin, you just, whatever it is. 
Anything that God says don't do that you do, anything that he says do that you don't do, I mean, that's sin. Anything that displeases God. So we're left with all this sin with no way to get rid of it, okay? You can't get the beans out of the jar, all right? Once they're here, they're here for the purpose of this illustration. There's nothing we can do, but what we have to do is what David did. Somebody else has to take care of that for us. We couldn't. God said, that's okay because I'm willing to. He goes to the cross and he sheds his blood and his blood covers all of our sin. And it not only covers our sin, it completely wipes it away. The blood of Christ offers forgiveness for sin. Okay, here's the thing though. How many of you who are Christians, once you got saved, you have never sinned since then? How many of you? If you raise your hand, you're going to sin again because you're lying we all sin there are sins that we commit which is what the rest of this represents now some of you need a bigger bag than this than others but I mean after I sin every now and then I'm gonna tell a little bit of a lie right I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna fail God but that's okay because his blood covers all of my sin I'm gonna tell I might steal something I might you know commit something horrific who knows but that's okay because the blood of Jesus covers my sin. The longer It's not an excuse to sin, but we mess up. And as long as we go to God and we confess that sin, we are saved. Our relationship with God is restored. And time and time again when we sin, God continues to offer forgiveness. Some of those sins are a little harder to get in there, I guess. But all of, no matter how many times, the blood of Jesus is enough to cover all sins for all time. And that's the beauty of salvation. Again, The sin of man, when I come to Christ and I say, Lord, I I recognize that you died for my sins. When I confess my sin, he takes my sin off of me and he places it on himself. He paid for my sin on the cross. So now I don't have to pay for my sin. Here's the ending message of David. Even if you're guilty of adultery, murder, or a Bathsheba gate cover-up, If you will come to God and seek forgiveness, God will forgive you. You think about the story I told you last week. There's a similar one about a king who has a son who loves to be around people. Nobody's in his castle and he wants to be around people so much that he he goes to a certain group of people and he offers them, hey, listen, I, I, I will sacrifice my son if you will come and live with me in my castle. I want a relationship with you. I want to share my life with you. All you have to do is exchange your poverty for his wealth. All you have to do is exchange your way of living, your sin, for his righteousness. If you will accept that, you can come in my castle, you can live with me, you can sit at my table. Everything that I have, all the wealth that I have, now belongs to you. But then, strangely, that group of people looks at the king and says, you know what, no thanks. Sacrifice your son or not, I'm not going to accept it. No matter how much you want to give me, how much wealth, how much joy, how much whatever... An inheritance, food, I'm poor, I have nothing, I still, thanks but no thanks. Could you imagine anyone saying no to that? I can't imagine anyone saying no to that, but here's the deal. If you're here today, Jesus is offering you eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he gave his son to die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And if you look at him and say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. 
then you are that man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and forgiveness. Even with the consequences of our sin, your forgiveness is so wonderful. You clean us out, you clean us up, you make us acceptable. Jesus, you took on our sin on the cross. Your blood, the shedding of your blood offers us forgiveness. We can be forgiven. We can be saved from the eternal consequence of our sin. Yes, there will be temporary consequences, but eternally we can be saved and set free. Spend eternity with you in heaven. And as we enter into this time of year where we're celebrating Easter, we're reminded of the price that you paid. Jesus, you suffered, you died, a painful death on the cross. More than that, you suffered your Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. You were raised from the dead so that we too could conquer death and spend eternity living with you in heaven. But the only way we get to experience that is if we're willing to accept the salvation that only you can offer. Lord, there may be individuals here today who are dealing with sin and they don't see a way out because there's not a way out without you. They've never accepted that gift of salvation. I pray that they would come during this time of invitation and accept that most precious gift, salvation that only comes through your son Jesus. And Father, there may be people here today who know you, but they're struggling with unconfessed sin in their life. Their relationship with you is not right. They're wallowing, they're stewing in that sin just like David did, and it's time to confess it, to get right with you, to repent, to turn away from that sin, to turn back from you. Yes, there will be consequences, but your grace is so much greater than the consequences. Lord, I pray that if that's the case, that confession would take place during this time of commitment. There may be other decisions. Lord, whatever you lead us to do, let us be obedient. Let us not be disobedient. Let us be obedient to what you ask us to do in this moment, in this moment, but always. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.